0: if China were to step in and put its thumb on the scale, that would drastically change the picture. And maybe Ukraine would lose some of what it has managed to claw back at great, great cost to its people.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Tuesday, March 21st. Today on the Powers That Be, Julia Yaffe and I discuss Chinese President Xi Jinping's momentous three-day trip to Moscow. What does his show of support for Putin mean for his ostensible goal to broker a ceasefire in Ukraine? And later, Eric Gardner stops by to discuss Trump's legal peril in the Stormy Daniels case and what it would mean to put a former president behind bars. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm Ben Landy filling in for Peter while he attends to some wedding planning, which means I have the great fortune to be talking to Julia Yaffe this morning. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm good. This is actually a perfect time to have you on because literally as we're recording this on, it's actually a Monday afternoon, President Xi Jinping of China has landed in Moscow for a three-day visit to Russia. And from the outside, this certainly seems momentous. I mean, Putin, he's just been labeled a war criminal by the ICC, which means he could be arrested if he visits any number of countries. He's kind of short of friends on the world stage right now. So what do you think Russia and China are both looking to get out of this trip?
0: Well, and he's also just short. I was watching the meeting. (laughs) I'm sorry, you just (laughs) left it out there. I was watching the meeting on Russian state TV, and Putin is shorter even than Xi Jinping. But he was so happy to see him. He just like, it's like, God, my one friend finally came to visit me. Oh, God, like, he was just so happy and so relieved. And, you know, watching the event, the coverage of it on Russian state TV, it has been incredible. You and I were just talking before the recording. It's like, you know, the second coming of Christ over there. Russia is specifically under Vladimir Putin has always wanted very much to be part of the west and part of europe and always saw itself as a white european power and very much looked down on places like china that was the kind of ally it would have out of necessity and now necessity has come because all the friends that putin you know the cool kids will not let putin sit at their table they won't do business with him they will not buy his oil or his gas Uh, in fact they might arrest him and they've labeled him a war criminal so he has to turn east and it's really been china that has picked up the slack and has been buying not just russian energy but russian fertilizer and other russian exports and helping russia circumvent sanctions And China has also done a great deal to stick up for Russia in terms of World diplomacy, both in the UN at the G20.
1: Yeah, I have to imagine this is somewhat humiliating for Russia too. I mean, Putin even said in his remarks before Xi landed that you know China has made these big leaps forward, and you know he's even a little bit envious of the Chinese. Like this must be a very humbling moment for him to be relying on Beijing and also Iran to backstop his economy and his war machine.
0: Well, and not just Iran, but North Korea. So it's interesting. I talked to a source in Moscow this morning. And this person was saying that, you know, all this talk in the West about uh, China potentially supplying ammunition and weapons to Russia, the source was saying, actually, we don't want them to. We don't want them to get their hands dirty. China's too important of an ally. Let's keep getting our weapon stocks from North Korea and Iran, and let's have China fill in where they carry the most weight on the diplomatic stage, economically where, yeah, where they're more important. It's a better division of labor. And, you know, there are Russians I've spoken to where they're like, God, that's so humiliating. We, you know, we thought we were the second biggest, most powerful army in the world. And now we have to turn to fucking North Korea
1: for our shells. Well, presumably this sort of ratifies Xi's opinion of himself, too, I mean, or at least like the way he would like to be viewed as a global leader in diplomacy and geopolitics, sort of playing a similar position as the U.S. has for nearly a century now. You know, if he can broker some kind of deal between Russia and Ukraine, which I I presume is part of what he wants to do here, that would affirm his place as a major global diplomat and, and affirm China's place as a real superpower.
0: For the last, you know, decade and a half, It was Putin that was always trying to do that. He was always trying to get involved in this or that global crisis and say, hey, let me try to broker a deal, even as he was maybe making the crisis worse in Syria, uh, with the Iran nuclear deal, etc. He wanted to show the world and to his own people that it was Russia and him that were the kind of adults in the room, that it was that the U.S. was the warmongering nation and Russia was the one that was committed to diplomacy and the more adult-like, cool-headed approach. Now that's completely out the window with Russia's isolation and the fact that nobody trusts Putin. And now she is playing this role, which is, I think, fascinating. As for she's and China's peace plan for Ukraine, I don't even know if you can call it a peace plan. It's this very vague 12-step program, it's like, we support countries' territorial integrity, and we support the UN, and we don't support the violation of countries' territorial sovereignty. All these very vague things that can be interpreted any number of ways. For example, you could say, well, Russia's violating Ukraine's territorial sovereignty and integrity. Or you could say that the U.S. is violating China's territorial sovereignty and integrity by supplying weapons to Taiwan, which China thinks is part of China. So it's these very vague things that aren't really much of a peace plan. Insofar as they specifically apply to Ukraine, the plan talks about working toward a ceasefire, but it doesn't talk about withdrawing troops. It's ta- It talks about a ceasefire, which unfortunately has put the U.S. and the West in the position of saying, no, we're against a ceasefire because that would basically solidify Russia's illegal ter- territorial gains.
1: All this comes after Putin just made this trip to occupied Mariupol on Sunday, where there's been reports of mass graves, just just immense, horrific devastation. That visit, more than anything else we've seen, really felt to me like Putin planting his flag. Like if there are these future negotiations, when they happen, whether it's a ceasefire or whatever else, Putin has now drawn a line around that city in particular and the Donbass region as unquestionably Russia's.
0: Absolutely. I think that both the visit did that, as well as the illegal annexation of those regions, and not just annexing them, but making their annexation part of the russian constitution but um yes they're they're saying that this is this is now russia we're never giving this back and any any negotiations start elsewhere at the same time i also thought this visit was very interesting because up until this point it's been over a year of this war and putin had never visited the front unlike Zelensky, unlike President Biden, unlike Rishi Sunak, unlike various world leaders, he had never visited the front, like Joseph Stalin, for example, who never visited the front during World War II, out of cowardice, essentially, out of the fear that something would happen to his own precious person. He went under the cover of darkness, which I thought was interesting, which makes it like, yes, he's planting his flag, but he's kind of doing it like a thief in the night. And he's doing it in a way that the cameras will not show the Russian people the devastation that still exists in Mariupol, that the cameras will only show a very kind of tight frame of the couple of buildings that have been rebuilt.
1: Right, a very sanitized view yeah. of the conflict. But yeah,
0: I thought personally, I thought the you know the visit under the cover of night felt very cowardly.
1: Julia, how is the China-Russia summit being viewed in Washington? Because obviously this this comes as ministers in, in Brussels as well as the Biden administration have said that they are stepping up additional military aid to Ukraine. I presume that some of the fear overhanging this summit is that China will agree to begin providing military support directly to Russia in addition to the economic support that they already are providing.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a worry that that would completely change the picture. It would change the stalemate to a more dynamic picture in Russia's favor because the West has given a lot and it's also not quite tapped out, but it's getting there. And we have not in the West ramped up our production accordingly to keep Ukraine supplied at the levels it needs to maintain this fight as long as it needs to, to win or to even maintain this fight for a couple years. Right now, maybe because Russia is not doing too great, but if China were to step in and put its thumb on the scale, that would drastically change the picture. And maybe Ukraine would lose some of its hard won gains, some of what it has managed to claw back at great, great cost to its people that would also completely change what any kind of negotiated settlement would look like if if there were one in the offing.
1: Well, again, we're recording on Monday afternoon, just a few hours after Xi has touched down in Moscow. So we'll see how this unfolds. We'll see if there are additional agreements between these two countries that are announced. But we're certainly living in interesting and frightening times. Julia, thanks as always for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me,
1: Ben. When we come back, Eric Gardner is here to talk about Trump's possible indictment in the Stormy Daniels case. Welcome back. I'm here with Eric Gardner to discuss another piece of news that has been unfolding in real time, which is... Donald Trump claiming that he expects to be arrested on Tuesday in connection with the Manhattan DA's investigation into his effort to cover up the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Eric, thanks for being here. We're recording on Monday afternoon. This episode is going to publish Tuesday at midnight on the West Coast. So with that big caveat out of the way that we don't know how Tuesday is going to unfold, I wanted to get into some of the unprecedented legal questions here. First of all, can you sort of take us through what are the potential charges and and what's at stake in a potential trial? Sure. Donald Trump,
2: as everyone knows, made a $130,000 hush money payment to Stormy Daniels, a, a porn star who he allegedly had an affair with. And this payment came on the eve of the 2016 election. The payment was made through his lawyer, Michael Cohen at the time, and Michael Cohen himself has pled guilty and served prison time for a campaign finance conviction, basically that this payment was made to benefit Donald Trump in the election so that nobody would know that he had this affair. Now, everyone has been investigating this for quite a while. The feds investigated this for a while and ultimately took a pass on it. And the state prosecutors have been investigating as well. And now Alvin Bragg, the uh, district attorney in Manhattan, appears to be going forward with a claim. He's making a twofold claim. One is that the money that was directed to Michael Cohen was kind of hidden. It was stated, these papers, that it was for legal reimbursement, but really it was for a different purpose. Now that in itself would just be a misdemeanor with no more than one year in prison potentially. So to get this to a felony, Mr. Bragg has to show that this misdemeanor was done to cover up a bigger crime. And the bigger crime is campaign finance. Basically, what the prosecutor is going to need to show is that the money was made, and it was designed in a way to get Donald Trump elected. Now Donald Trump can come back and say, "Yes, uh, you know these payments were made. I didn't know about them, and even you know if I did know about them, they weren't to get me elected. They were to, you know, cover up the embarrassment." of having an affair or to protect his reputation, to protect his marriage, that sort of thing. So that's basically the dynamic that's that's playing out here. It's a, a kind of unprecedented situation. Obviously, there's never been a former president who's been indicted. Also, this is the first time that this kind of legal theory is being tested. So for all those reasons, there's quite a lot of interest
1: in this. Trump has been attacking this prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, saying that this is essentially a political persecution. I suppose it's true that on some level, all prosecutions have some level of politics involved. I mean, the, the DA, this is a uh, an elected position. In Manhattan, And it's my understanding that his office was previously focused actually on, on another potential crime. He was looking into Trump's financial records, possibly an indictment related to Trump's business practices. They actually spent about a year or so on that case. This was a, an investigation that began under the previous Manhattan DA, Cy Vance. They ultimately decided not to move forward. There was some controversy around that. The prosecutors who were involved in that investigation resigned. So I presume also there, there has been some heat on Alvin Bragg, the, uh, the new DA who, who's currently in that role, to move forward with another kind of case. So I, I guess um, on some level, maybe it's not surprising that he has resurrected what is essentially a, a mirror image of the 2018 case against Michael Cohen.
2: Yeah, Bragg has uh, faced pressure on all different sides. He faced pressure from former prosecutors in his own office, who suggested that he wasn't interested in the case and that you know he was backing down too easily. He's faced accusations of a witch hunt from Trump. He just in the past 24 hours, we're we're seeing letters from from members of Congress who are telling him that this potential indictment is toll abuse of his office, and he needs to preserve records. I would expect that as it gets to trial, one of the defenses that Donald Trump might make is that this is a political vendetta. They'll you know seek to uncover what went down in terms of you know, how this pr- prosecution unfolded. It's uh, pretty rare to have a situation like this. I'm sure that it unfolded in all sorts of interesting and unusual ways. And I would expect Trump to dig into that and to, to try to show that this is a pretty unusual situation and he's a victim here.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is totally uncharted legal territory. Um, to my knowledge, there's never been a criminal indictment of a past president, at least in modern times. and and certainly not a a former president who is also a current presidential candidate. Are there any precedents here whatsoever? I mean, I I suppose there was a similar campaign finance case against John Edwards in 2012, but that's a case that the prosecutors failed to make. He he was declared uh, not guilty.
2: Yeah, I think that a lot of Trump supporters are going to look at that Edwards case and, and hope that that situation is repeating Itself here. I mean, if you remember that case, that w- that case was brought by Republican prosecutors who stayed inside the Obama administration for for an extra couple of years as they were inve- investigating this. Edwards had fathered a child with a mistress, and he allegedly had used you know almost a million dollars worth of donations from political allies to to keep that affair secret. In many ways, that there is echoes of that case here. The other thing to be said about that Ed. Edward's case is that, you know, it went to trial and it fell apart when the prosecution's star witness at that time, one of Edward's aides, just kind of didn't hold up on cross-examination. The defense was really able to, like, poke at his credibility. They were able to, you know, show that he was doing things that maybe was outside of Edward's direction. Really kind of, like, attack the prosecution's claims and i would expect that if this trump thing goes to trial they'll try to do the same thing with with michael cohen they're going to attack michael cohen um they're going to attack his credibility especially since he served jail time for this so he's convicted guy and you know so his credibility is already is in doubt as for other precedents there really is not that much i mean it's very very hard to bring campaign finance Charges to prove mental state is really difficult. And yeah, because it is politics, prosecutors are particularly careful when it comes to this sort of thing. It was an immense embarrassment for prosecutors who failed to secure a conviction against Edwards. I'm sure that's a factor in the decades since for other prosecutors thinking about bringing charges against other politicians.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the same time, the Edwards case lasted about a year or so from indictment to him being declared. Not guilty on those campaign finance charges. I mean, that is a long time in in, in politics, um, and you have to imagine that whatever happens here, it is inevitably going to become a just massive political and media circus. Eric, what do we actually know about Trump's outside counsel in this case? It's Joe Tacopina and Susan Nichellis. I don't know if I'm saying their names correctly.
2: Yeah, Tacopina. He's an interesting fellow. Um, you know, the New York Post once called him the most hated lawyer. In in New York, uh, he's he's represented celebrities like Alex Rodriguez and Jay Z. He's also represented you know a lot of cops who were, were accused of terrible things like you know raping women and and all that. He he just has this reputation for seeking the limelight, not shying away from from tough cases. He's a Bulldog attorney, he has this kind of rough edge reputation. In in some ways, he's he's kind of the perfect Trump lawyer. On the other hand, Trump has had a lot of lawyers who uh, he's never been long for. So you know, who knows whether whether he will survive and be the one that actually takes this to trial? But if he does, Takapino, you he he likes to think of himself as the country's best cross examiner, and so I would expect. Him to relish the opportunity to to cross examine Michael Cohen, I think that will certainly be their central st- strategy. But yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely interesting uh, as far as representing Trump. I I, I would not wish that on my worst enemy.
1: Again, we're we're recording on Monday afternoon, so we don't yet know if there are going to be charges, what the charges might be. If there is an indictment that alleges that the hush money payments violated campaign finance laws. Trump's lawyers are expected to argue that it fails the, quote, irrespective test, that that Trump would have paid Stormy Daniels, irrespective of the campaign in 2016 that was ongoing, because he he would have made this payment anyway to avoid embarrassment because he was a a public figure and so on. Do you think that argument stands up, especially given that the defense really only needs one sympathetic on a jury to get this case thrown out?
2: Here's the problem, I think, with that that theory, something that is not really being discussed about right now. I think that's a legitimate theory, but it definitely has helped if Trump himself gets on the witness stand saying that, you know, uh, he didn't want to break up his marriage. He, he offers kind of like the alternative theory for why he wanted to pay off Stormy Daniels. The problem is Donald Trump is a pretty known, well-known liar, and I can't imagine that any attorney is going to want to put Donald Trump on the witness stand um, for various reasons. Donald Trump, to this day, denies that that he actually had an affair with Stormy Daniels. It's not necessary for the prosecutors to prove that he had an affair, but perhaps prosecutors have some evidence that there was indeed an affair that happened. And so it's those sorts of things that could really damage Donald Trump at trial. So yes, I do think that you know it's very tough for prosecutors to prove that the money was made for the direct purpose of influencing the, the election rather than something else. But on the other hand, I think that they're aided um, by the fact that um, this is a very problematic defendant.
1: Yeah, especially since Trump has this long public history of boasting about women that he's had a fair with, you know, the, the infamous locker room talk that surfaced in the Access Hollywood tape. To your point, it may be hard to make that argument to a jury that Trump was just so ashamed of his conduct in this case that he made this payment without any thought to the election, which at the time was like a month away.
2: Yeah, I mean, everyone knows Donald Trump to be a pretty boastful person who who hardly ever, you know, thinks that he's done something wrong. So it is out of the ordinary for him to make a payment like this just to, you know, save a marriage or something like that. But we'll see. I mean, Donald Trump has a lot of legal problems. Um, you know, just next month he's going to be going to trial on alleged sexual abuse. So it's going to be a very fascinating 12 months, especially since he's running again for presidency. And there's all sorts of other potential prosecutions hanging out there. I'm not even sure whether or not this trial is going to happen before the, the following election. It wouldn't surprise me if it's delayed, but there's a lot to dance around right now.
1: Absolutely. Eric, thanks so much. We'll have you back on next week to uh, to talk through it all. My pleasure.